The Bob Murphy Show, episode 303. you gonna do get ready for another episode of the bob murphy show the podcast promoting free markets free minds and grateful souls it's your source for commentary and interviews conducted by a christian and economist now here's your host bob murphy hey everybody welcome back to the bob murphy show this episode i'm going to be speaking with jonathan bartlett And our topic is going to be some of his recent uh, work, publications, in fact, in peer-reviewed journals uh, regarding intelligent design or ID. And we're going to start from scratch and just have him tease out uh, some of the overlapping concepts in this area just to avoid confusion. And then we'll jump into the contributions in his published work. Let me just give you a little bit of his bio here. Jonathan Bartlett is a software developer at McElroy Manufacturing, where he builds tablet controls for remote control construction equipment, as well as embedded software development and developing web applications. Jonathan is the author of 10 books and the primary editor of two edited volumes of conference papers. His first book, Programming from the Ground Up, has been used in places as diverse as DeVry and Princeton. This was also notable as one of the first full-fledged open-source textbooks and has been translated into a few different languages. His most popular book is Electronics for Beginners, which has been translated into German. He is the author of papers in mathematics, computer science, theoretical biology, and philosophy. In his spare time, Jonathan is the director and primary researcher of the Blythe Institute and is a senior fellow at the Bradley Center for Natural and Artificial Intelligence. As part of the Bradley Center, Jonathan regularly writes for the mindmatters.ai website. Outside of intelligent design, Jonathan has been a reviewer for several mainstream journals on papers dealing with philosophy of mind and philosophy of science. Okay, so as you will see there, he doesn't have a PhD in biology, and that's okay. All right, so the stuff we're going to get into in this, and and this is the thing, I understand standard uh, orthodox, let's call it, defenders of the current Darwinian framework. And in in the interview, Jonathan gets real specific about, you know, what labels we should actually use for the reigning paradigm, let's say, because it is actually not the same as it would have been 20 years ago. Um, You know, they would say, yeah, this guy's not even a biologist. He's coming here. But again, so the work we're talking about, I think it's technically a journal of theoretical biology, at least some of his work is published in. But What's going on with the intelligent design people is they are, among other things that's going on, but one definitely true statement I can make is that they're taking results that are fairly standard in information science or information theory and then bringing them to bear in the debate on evolution, all right? And so – it's not surprising then that somebody who has, as Jonathan does here, who definitely has a pedigree in terms of computer science, information theory, coming in and uh, you know dabbling, if that's the word you want to use, into biology and coming up with some results just trying to show that, hey, this reigning paradigm here has some serious issues with it. All right? And that's, again, I'm anticipating a little bit, but I just want to sort of diffuse your skepticism on the front end. 
maybe this isn't a great analogy, but it would be like if um, some historians are arguing about, and you know, like military historians, yeah, are arguing about, hey, how did uh, this great Roman general back in such and such fend off the invading hordes? And then they were looking at his diary, and he said that he uh, started using this new catapult technique that um, involved basically perpetual motion. So he, you know, that wasn't the terminology he used. I've seen, of course, he wouldn't be writing in English. But from our modern vantage point, he was describing that they started using a perpetual motion machine. And that's how they won the battle, where they were hopelessly outnumbered. So, and, and these military historians are arguing about that. They're arguing tactics and things. And, what, and so then some physicist comes over to this debate and says, no, guys, what are you talking about? We're quite confident from my field that there's no such thing as a perpetual motion machine. So you can't take this guy's narrative at face value. That, that can't be what happened. Right? And then you can imagine the military historians, what's your training, sir? Have you even studied military history? I don't think so. Okay. So you can do with that analogy what you will. But that's, in my view, kind of what's going on here. Okay. So without further ado... Here is my discussion with Jonathan Bartlett, who's going to be talking about uh, something interesting when it comes to so-called randomness in mutations that is the underpinning of the standard story of, oh, how do, how do we explain the origin of the species and such? And as you'll see, he's going to rely on things that all of us know a little bit about, you know, having to do with the immune system and how that works. And then you'll see that, oh, wait a minute, something that, you know, this idea of a random mutation that then the environment acts upon in terms of fitness, there's something, there's, there's a lot more going on with that cute little phrase of random mutation that is interesting at the very least. So without further ado, here's my discussion with Jonathan Bartlett. Jonathan, welcome to the Bob Murphy Show. Thanks so much for having me on. Well, as people would know from my uh, intro already, we're going to be talking about intelligent design or ID. So before we jump into the fun stuff, maybe just can you explain a little bit about your background and how you came to be publishing on these topics and why anyone should listen to you? Yeah, so uh, my background is is kind of uh, convoluted. And uh, and ultimately, I would say that, you know, if you don't want to listen to me, don't. Um, but um, kind of the way that um, I, I actually when I grew up, I was not interested in biology at all. Um, I kind of, uh, got pushed into biology, uh, from having, um, uh, I, so I've had two children who had a genetic disorder called cytochrome C oxidase deficiency. And, uh, because of that, uh, I had to basically, uh, learn biology and genetics, um, and I spent many, many years just studying day and night to help them out because they had a ridiculous amount of, of care requirements. And uh, one thing that you'll find is that when you are, if you are the parent of a special needs kid, they, the, whether or not doctors take you seriously um, depends uh, very heavily on whether or not they think you know what you're talking about. And so, um, you know, the kind of the difference between uh, being able to talk to a doctor intelligently and them just kind of patting you on the head and saying, uh, you know, go along now and do what I say uh, is heavily dependent on whether or not you really understand at a deep level what they're saying. 
And uh, so anyway, so we spent uh, many years um, struggling uh, with, with our children's health. Uh, but uh, those two, those two sadly passed. My oldest uh, died when he was about five and a half years. Um, and uh, after he died, I was like, um, well, you know, I've spent all this time studying biology. Uh, you know, what, what, what do I do with that? You know? And so uh, from that, um, I kind of uh, went through, uh, I started into kind of the creation movement to some extent. And then I discovered uh, the intelligent design movement. And uh, that really clicked with me. And I started uh, um, doing more and more uh, research on the su- subject. I'm, um, and uh, as we went on, um, I realized, you know, I, I kind of started it from a, an apologetics perspective. Um, I've, I've, I've always been, I, I've always been a, a Christian and I've always tried to focus my life on, on, uh, you know, serving God and serving others. And, um, it just, uh, but it kind of shifted for me as the more I got into it, as I realized, um, that it isn't so much that, um, uh, Christianity needs, uh, science to kind of give, give its blessing to it, but rather that, uh, that actually science has a need that there is, uh, some, some, uh, missing pieces of science, uh, that really are filled uh, by looking at science in different ways. And uh, while you don't necessarily have to be a Christian to look at it that way, I do think being a Christian helps kind of uh, 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 provide a, a background framework that helps you make better sense of what's happening. Um, so I spent many years uh, studying. Um, I, um, I, you know, when, when I say I, I, I study things, I, I do it really deeply. Um, I've, uh, you know, I've, I've published in, uh, mathematics, even though I've, I'm only self-studied in mathematics. Um, I've published in, uh, biology and philosophy, even though I'm actually only self-studied in both of those. So, um, the, uh, you know, people ask me what my credentials are and I, I tell people I don't actually have sufficient credentials to tie my shoelaces in the morning. Um, but I do know how to, uh, how to, how to research, uh, different fields and, uh, and, and figure out how they work. Um, so, I mean, if somebody needs credentials from me, I have, I've written quite a number of books. Um, I, I mostly on computer science. Um, I have one book, uh, programming from the ground up, uh, that was, uh, required. It's been required reading in, in schools as diverse as DeVry and Princeton. So, um, I've had, uh, I've written, uh, books on calculus, on uh it's here calculus philosophy of science and uh, uh computer science and actually one on uh on kind of politics so i've kind of uh um i i i have a i i tell people i get bored easily is mm-hmm. is, is the is the long and short of it so um anyway so all that um i've been doing intelligent design work for a long time um i know a lot of the people in it um, I've, I've run several conferences, uh, that are kind of research conferences on intelligent design. Um, I'm, uh, I'm, a, an editor of, uh, two of the journals, uh, that are intelligent design focused. Um, and, uh, and also interestingly, um, just kind of along the way, I've had, actually had several journals that aren't affiliated with the ID movement, 
uh, asked me to be reviewers for papers and uh, uh, write uh, critical commentaries and that sort of thing. Okay. Um, so I, I'm sorry to hear about your, your children. I, I didn't know that. I probably would have been so glib in my uh, introductory yeah. question if I realized that was it, the ultimate it, uh, motive. It, it, I, I understand the, you know, one of the, uh, one, one of the things that, that, you know, people ask me all the time, you know, how many kids do you have? And that can be a, oh, a, yeah. a, t- a yeah. tough, a t- people think it's a simple question and it winds up being a, a kind of difficult one to answer. So I, I yeah, it's not a problem. Right, because then you don't know whether to, like, you know what they mean. Right. Is, but, it, is, it, is it three or is it five? Yeah, and, and I, then, you know, you don't want to, like, yeah. make the person feel awful for having exactly. said that. And, the, oh, geez, I was just asking, I was making a conversation. You know, yeah, I get exactly. it. Um, okay, so, and, and but just, I guess, to make sure people don't just tune out, like, so you, what we're going to get to after we get through some of the fundamentals here is you recently published, like, you actually published in, uh, right. biology my, journals, right? Yeah. So, uh, one of my recent papers, I mean, it's indexed in PubMed. Um, so it's, a uh, it, it was in a journal called active biotheoretica, which is a theoretical biology journal. Um, uh, according to my wife, I'm, I'm good at, at anything as long as it's theoretical. Um, <laughs> so, you know, if, if you want me to, to fix the, fix the air conditioning in our house, that's, that's a little out of my ball field, but if you want me to, you know, maybe write a, an equation about how that works, that, that mm-hmm. might be a little bit, a little bit closer. <laughs> okay. Um, you could definitely look though at it and say some intelligent being designed this thing, just maybe not that intelligent um, <laughs> for the air conditioner. Uh, exactly. Okay. Um, so why don't we, I, I think probably, a, let me just make an analogy and tell me how you feel about this. Cause you, you're conversant with all these different things. When you were explaining how, uh, it's not that Christianity needs science to come in and, you know, sort of validate it, but you think it's almost vice versa, that science has certain blind spots, let's say, that someone with a Christian worldview can easily spot and just say, no, guys, you're missing, you know, this big thing right here, or you're you're engaging in a, in a fallacy and you don't even see it. Let me spell it. Uh, I, I take you to be saying, your, your point is not that, oh, unless you are yourself a Christian or believe the Bible, you're just, you can't understand anything that no, you mean you can get into the, the framework that the secular naturalists are using and in their own worldview, show them there, you know, there's a problem here with what you're doing and here's it, but it's that you just might not have noticed that had you not been a Christian. Is that my understanding what your claim is? That's partially true. So, um, so yes, to, to be certain, um, you know, there are things where, where it's a lot easier to point out and say, Hey, you're limited here. But I also think there's a, a wider frame. It's not necessarily that you have to be a Christian to see it, but it's really or to, to see it or believe it, but that the modern form of atheism doesn't. Um, so this is why, um, so intelligent design, I like to tell people, um, it's not really a theory of origins. It, People can use it uh, to talk as a um, component of a theory of origins, but intelligent design is actually a theory of causation. It's uh, it's uh, it's about what 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 all does actually count as a cause. And so, um, if you are a thoroughgoing materialist, well, you only have one kind of cause to choose from, and it has to be some form of material causation. Um, and so. 
you know, as as a Christian, I obviously don't think that that's true. Now, you can you can not think that's true for other reasons as well, but that's one of the things that that Christianity does. Is Christianity can at least say, okay, well, I have a prior reason for thinking that that's not true, and therefore I'm going to go look and see uh, what what the alternatives are. Um, so, um, so looking, so basically, what intelligent design says is that um, uh, basically intelligent causation is its own form of a cause. It can't be reduced to a material mechanism. Um, cause a lot of people say, well, how does intelligent design work? Like, tell me the mechanism. Like, well, that's, that's actually counter to what intelligent design is doing. Mm-hmm. Intelligent design is, is talking about a, a, uh, a mode of causation that isn't materialistic. Um, and so that's, uh, so that's really what's the defining factor of intelligent design is whether or not this mode of causation actually exists, um, if it's real, if it can be uh, examined and quantified and that sort of thing. Um, but, um, and so, but it's, it's a lot easier to see if you are predisposed to see it. And I can see that, that if you were a materialist and you just didn't think that other types of causes uh, existed or were even meaningful, then you might, not, um, you might not be able to really see how um, intelligent design is, is, is operating. Okay, great. Yeah. And by the way, folks, for, for those watching the video, I'm in a new place right now and I'm experimenting with it. I'm realizing this lighting setup is making it look like I'm Two-Face. And so, you know, and maybe that's like a metaphor that I'm like trying to straddle between Christianity and science or something. But anyway, I'll try to <laughs> tinker with this in future episodes to get this, the balance better. But uh, the, I, I don't know if, if you like this, John. And again, don't worry, folks, we're going to get into me this in just a moment. But let me, I just what I don't want to have happen, Jonathan, is like some people who aren't Christians who are interested in evolution, whatever, to hear you say and just think that you're ultimately going to be like, you know, what, you need Jesus and da, 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 and then like, I, I don't need to hear this. Where I'm saying, even if you don't believe in the Bible, right, th- there are yeah, serious problems with the standard Darwinian explanation of things that you know, you can use information right. science to see. And it, it, yeah, people who happen to be Christian, I think, are more better equipped to immediately see the problem. Right. No, that that's exactly correct. Um, the uh, I forgot where he's going. Um, well, heaven. You, you, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no. Um, so, uh, how did you start? You start saying um, that uh, that uh, you don't have to be a Christian to see the problems, but it helps if you are. Yeah. So, um, yeah. So the, uh, you know, I am I am probably the the, the world's worst evangelist. Um, so if if you're if if you're worried that I'm going to come up here and evangelize you, well, Christopher um, Hitchens then, was pretty bad. <laughs> well, um, the um, uh, there's one of the 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 four uh, Sam Harris. I actually thought he was a great evangelist for deism. Mm-hmm. Um, he actually uh, uh, he 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 says he's for atheism, but if you if you actually dig dig down deep. Uh, his 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 theology or his his ideas only make sense under deism, not really atheism. But um, nonetheless, um, I'm not I'm not here to preach at anybody because it's really I. It's one of those things. It's probably it's probably a problem on my on my side. I probably should be preaching to you, but I'm 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 really terrible at it. So, well, why um, don't we? But, if I could j- jump it. So, can you just elaborate a little bit for again to to distinguish between mm-hmm. these? 
a lot of people think that intelligent design is the same thing as biblical creationism or as creationism right. as a Trojan horse and you know, you're just trying to dress yeah. it up, but basically you you believe in the Genesis account. And so can you comment yeah, on that? So, yeah. So now, first of all, I want to say that, that there are people who use intelligent design in that way. So um, I, that there, you know, that's, that's the fact. Um, and, and that's unfortunate because that isn't what intelligent design is. Um, so as I, as I mentioned, intelligent design is more of a theory of causation. Uh, what sort of causes are there? And so when people, uh, you know, so people think about intelligent design uh, against uh, Darwinian evolution. And so that's true, uh, but that's, I, I view that as more of an application area rather than the theory itself. And, but the problem is that when people, when you argue against Darwinian evolution, uh, people think that that means that you are against evolution as a whole. And uh, that's actually not the case. Um, what intelligent design is doing is, is saying what sort of causes are required to actually perform some given action. Say, so we look at we look at something and we say, okay, well, you know, this, you know, it's, it's like saying, you know, if if uh, you know for for something to catch on fire, there had to have been enough thermodynamic energy to do that, right? And so you're saying there's a causal necessity. There's something that needs explanation for that to have happened. And so in intelligent design, we say, well, when we have things that are like uh, highly informational, when we have these things that, that work in a semantic manner and not just in a physical manner, well, these things require a type of cause that isn't really readily available um, in Darwinian evolution. That's why a lot of people say, well, you know, you use Darwinian as a pejorative, and and really, it's not the case. We're using the word Darwinian to be specific about the type of evolution that we're objecting to. So, to give an example, because there's a lot of different ways that evolution might work. A lot of people have been, uh, we've kind of had this one idea about what evolution is ingrained in us. So that's the only way that people think about it working. Um, but can, uh, can I stop you? Just to yeah. clarify. So, what you're making a distinction. You're saying it's not that you're opposed to the idea of evolution or the concept or you, what it's specifically Darwinian evolution that what people mean by that more specific phrase that you're saying that by itself does not Correct. have the explanatory power to, to get yeah, the job a, done. Yeah. The, you, you wind up with a, uh, with a combinatorial explosion that is just not solvable. Okay. Um, so the, so let, let me give you an example of, a way that evolution could happen that is not uh, contrary to to the ideas of intelligent design. Okay. So um, let's let, let, you know when you install an operating system on your computer, right? You have a single disk that's the installer, right? And then when once it's installed, you go on your computer and you find all these different programs. You find Notepad, WordPad, the the system settings. Uh, the the finder, you know, uh, all these different programs are are on your computer. These, these separate, different programs, and so, but all of them actually had their origin in this one uh, master program, the installer. And so, you could say that there was a common descent between the installation program and all the programs that wound up on your computer. Um, and so, that was it was a program. And that program was a common ancestor of all those programs. But it would be incorrect to say that that all happened by random mutation and natural selection. 
what happened is the installer contained sufficient information to create all of the programs that are on your computer. Now, the installer didn't have all the information stored in the same way as the other programs on your computer. And it may have done things like since the environment that your computer is being installed into and written some configuration files, there's all sorts of things that it could have, that, that it can do and has transformed the information that it started with. Um, but ultimately, you know, it started out as a, an, an ins- a single program that had sufficient information for the rest of for the rest of the evolution, as it were, to take place into the uh, um, into the 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 programs that you have now. Um, another, can, can I stop yeah. you there again? So, and sorry, Jonathan, that I ran this by you before we recorded, but I think it's helpful for the audience too. Because I said that this was a big th- moment of aha for me um, when I was getting into this literature. That th- so again, folks, Jonathan's making the distinction between uh, the standard, I guess, what they call it now, Dar- neo Darwinian or Darwinian like grand synthesis. It, uh, it, it's yeah, the modern synthesis. Yeah, is, modern is synthesis. Probably the most te- technical yeah. term for it. Um, uh, that that explanation. You know, you, one could find that lacking and believe and endorse and say, "Oh no, I, I like this intelligent design or ID." You know, this this movement or whatever you want to call it. And you could still be an ID proponent and believe in common descent, or the theory of common descent. Let's say because it's a theory. And so specifically, so again, just trying to make these distinctions so, to understand what the claim is. Um, also, just Jonathan, you, when I was at Hillsdale as a as a professor, they had a. Uh, a conference on intelligent design. And I could just tell both sides were talking past each other. Mm-hmm. Well, it, it, I'm, I'm, of course I'm biased. I think it was more the standard, you know, biology professors who believed in the, you know, modern synthesis. They were not really listening to what they, like they were showing up, you know, what they thought was evidence for their, and not realizing, no, this is entirely consistent with, you know, what the ID guy was saying. It's, it doesn't re, you know, hurt his case at all. Um, exactly. And so, and the, like I said, the moment for me was when um, his name's William Dembski. Yeah, William Dembski. Yeah. He had this offhand remark in one of his books or something, or I think I was reading, saying that Michael Behe, who is the guy who like really g- goes into like the uh, bacterial flagellum, I think, and, you know, hey, look, if you go ahead and zoom in these things with an electron microscope, I mean, there's like an outboard motor on these things, like just showing how even individual cells from relatively simple creatures are surprisingly complicated. And it's like, if you just took one piece away, the whole thing wouldn't work. It's not, you know, it's hard to see how you could just even get that simple single celled organism to arise step-by-step, you know, with each change conferring an advantage. And Dembski said, as far as I know, Behe is fine with a theory of common descent. So he thinks every organism on earth right now, ultimately you could trace back to some super cell that they all were derived from, or, you know, that it was their ancestor mm-hmm. And he said, it's just that that first cell must have had a lot of information packed into it that it, you you just can't say, oh, lightning hit a pond or something. And that's where that cell kit, like, that, no, that just doesn't work if you understand, like, like information science. Right. So, and, 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 and Behe has said that since his very first book. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and, that, and that's the thing that I, I can usually tell, um, you know, because a lot of the people who are kind of the hardcore Darwinists who are heavy anti-ID, um, you can tell that they've never read Behe at all because they usually uh, consider him to be a, a special creationist. So, um, 
you know, and you're like, well, if you've read anything that, cause he says this in, I think almost every book, um, he says that he is fine with common descent. Mm-hmm. Um, so if you've literally written anything that he, he has written, uh, then you would know that that, that just isn't the case. Um, and that's, so, you know, I'm sorry to keep interrupting you, but that's why it's, again, yeah. it's so frustrating when I, when I watched these debates, cause there was a period again, when I was a professor at Hillsdale, I really mm-hmm. got into this stuff and yeah. you know, like I, you know, 15, 20 hours a week for a period there where that's all I was reading was this stuff. And, uh, and that was so frustrating because a lot, yeah, a lot of the standard, you know, Darwinian, uh, defenders, they were just, they kept offering all this evidence like look at the fossils and look at this and the, all just showing that, hey, we have very good reason to believe that, you know, there's a nested hierarchy and you could just go back and everything's branched. And I was like, yes, that's all perfectly consistent with the standard ID framework. You know what, again, so, all right, I'll, I'll stop beating that horse. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So the, um, yeah, so that, and, and that's a hundred percent true. I, I see that happen all the time. Uh, but the, the, so let me, let me again propose a, yet another version of evolution that would be consistent with intelligent design. So, um, so, you know, in, in the first instance we have, you know, everything came from a single ancestor, but that ancestor had sufficient information to, uh, um, to, uh, cause the, the generation of life as we know it. Um, another one would be, um, that, uh, at the origin of life, that there was an immaterial, that the, or- the origin of life, you know, I, I believe that we have something like a soul. Um, I don't know if soul is the exact thing to describe it, but something that is non-material about human beings. Well, if something non-material was, you know, in the first living thing, um, it could have, this was actually kind of the old uh, pre-Darwinian view. Um, the Lamarck, I, I think, I think this was Lamarck's view. I, I haven't done a lot of, you know, a historian of science might be able to uh, tell me that I'm wrong here, but you know, some some in in the pre-Darwinian view, it was the idea that that these organisms had a uh, had an end goal that they were driving to, and so you could have this diversification because there was an internal drive that was not a material mechanism, but it was uh, it was part of the the nature of the organism to drive to change to become, and so. Um, Anyway, so you, another another form of evolution that would be compatible with ID theory would be the idea that um, you know organisms uh, evolve uh, because of uh, uh, basically if the technical term term for this is teleology, so that they have an internal teleology that is driving them uh, towards a goal, and so that, that that's another another way that you mm-hmm. can um, have evolution. Now you don't you you can also you know. Intelligent design is also compatible with disagreeing with evolution because you might say, well, you know, maybe God put, uh, you know, at different uh, uh, times uh, or different places, different organisms had, uh, you know, made separate creations. And that's, you know, intelligent design does not sit, you know, is, is about what is causally, um, what, what sort of causes are, are good enough to, to work the effect. And so if the, uh, you know, so you can, intelligent design is not about, you know, this specific life history event. It's about our, is, is some proposed life history event compatible with what we know from information theory? Is it compatible with what we know with, from these other, other ideas? Is it, does it have enough causal, causal efficacy 
to achieve the result it's saying that it does. Mm -hmm. And that's what intelligent design focuses on is, is a question of, did you propose sufficient causes for the effect that you're seeing? Okay. Let me stop you again. Uh, I think, let me, now that we've been stressing so much, here's what the ID people are saying. Let me flip and just uh, recapitulate, you know, the standard thing you'd get in a mainstream biology course or whatever, just to make sure the listeners are understanding this clash now that we're setting up here. So in just standard biology, now the way it's taught and whatever, they will stress that, you know, Hey, don't fall into the trap. You might be thinking like, Oh, billions of years ago, there was, you know, the first primitive uh, life forms. And then they went this and they got more complicated. And it was all this grand thing, like leading up to, you know, the emergence of homo sapiens and, you know, everything. And they say, no, 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 don't think of it like that. Uh, Modern, you know, uh, the bacteria on your kitchen counter are just as evolved as you are. It's not that you're more sophisticated or what that, no, they can survive and they're, you know, they have survived the evolutionary test just as much as you have, you know, they do it through different means and whatnot. And evolution is blind. It's unguided. And the way it works, the mechanism is that when organisms reproduce, yep, every once in a while, it's rare, there's a, a mutation. And so they don't, they don't make a perfect copy of, you know, the DNA or whatever we're talking about, RNA and such. And, uh, and then and most of the times, those mutations are harmful, that that does not confer an advantage and those things die off very quickly and don't reproduce. But once in a great while, the mutation actually is advantageous. And again, what do you mean advantageous? From the perspective of the genes making more copies of themselves, that's what we mean. And then, so then those tend to be, you know, be more prevalent in the in succeeding generations and then eventually, you know, and this, that just keeps happening and given a long enough time frame, billions of years to work with, that simple blind, you know, point pointless. There's there's no goal. There's no no. There's no entity. You know, hoping to achieve something through these means. Nope, none of that. And out the other end, just yep. There's Homo sapiens walking around, and people. You got your eyeballs and your heart and your circulatory system, and that just yep. It was step by step, and the, just because you can't imagine how that could have arisen by a series of blind uh, incremental steps, that's no strike against my theory. That just your, you know, your lack of imagination is no strike against my explanation. Thank you. Okay, so that's the, you know, that, remember that's the foil. And I'm not. Are you okay with that, Jonathan? I don't think I'm putting words yeah, in her so, mouth. So one thing I, I want to correct on that, or I don't even know if it's correction, but um, I I don't like to say standard view because okay, fair um, enough. The uh, you know a lot of people will say, well, you know, the standard view isn't Darwinian anymore, and if that's correct, that's great. That's fantastic. Yeah, I love fair, that. Fair that enough. It, yep. mm-hmm. It's more in line with intelligent design. Um, now, uh, but you, usually when people say that, really, if you if you if you pull back the covers a little bit, they really mean yes, it's it's the Darwinian view, but I don't like to say so. Um, so there, there's there's a little bit of that. Um, but yeah, the uh, the the modern synthesis view is that 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 mutations are accidental that they didn't that there was not a mechanism that was geared towards their generation. Um, and then selection is about whether or not the organisms as they are now uh, either reproduce more or die more. And there isn't any forethought. There isn't any looking to where what this mutation might give us in the future. There's no intentionality whatsoever. It's just 
the the uh, mutations happen for no reason, um, and selection happens just because of the mutations and the environment that they're in, and not anything about the future. So that's um, that's kind of the, the the standard view of the modern synthesis. So um, the uh, and hopefully that's changing. Um, I, I actually see some evidence that it's changing, and people don't want to actually say that it's changing. Um, cause it can, that actually is a, a big career killer. If you, if you, if you stand too, uh, too far against, uh, the modern synthesis. Well, that, that was something I was going to ask you. It sounds like you got your uh, finger to the pulse of this. Um, certainly back when I was you know, hip deep in this stuff, like between 2003 and 2006, that's when I, right. Yeah. That's when I was uh, a professor at Hillsdale. It, yeah, it was clearly career suicide for a biology professor to be talking about this stuff. I mean, if you were tenured, you know, they couldn't get rid of you, but definitely, right. you know, your colleagues would think, oh, okay, he's one of those ID people. All right, Bible thumper. Um, you know, and again, folks, it's it's not merely at the time. So maybe things have simmered down since then, but at the time, John, and I'm sure you, if you were into it back then too, it wasn't merely that the defenders of the orthodox view, let's call it at the time, that, that they were just saying, oh, I disagree with what you're saying, and here's the – no, they were saying what you're talking about is not science. Like, like please, uh, students and faculty, do not fall for the siren song of the so-called ID, which is this, you know, creationism uh, is a Trojan horse. Because it's not just that they're wrong. It's that the stuff they're saying is you can't – the idea of an intelligence when you come to looking at biological structures – that's that's like saying you know oh that's thundering because God the gods are playing or are bowling or something like the, you know that that's the way they're trying to make it and uh, and I'll just one more thing Jonathan and right. I'll, I'll turn over my response would be like okay so you know if it, if it did turn out just you know it could be that humans are here because aliens from another galaxy a billion years ago came and planted like you know a seeded Earth with, with you know an S E E D not C-E-D-E, seeded earth with, you know, some things that they just developed in the lab. And you're saying we would never be, science could never teach us that because to even go down that path and say, you know, it almost looks like we were designed by alien would be unscientific. And so we could just never know that. And so we better hope that that's not what happened because now we can never know ever, no matter how much evidence. We could find tapes of the aliens, you know, doing it and telling us <laughs> that they buried in a mountain somewhere or something. And no, nope, we just said, oh, no, 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 I'm not listening. You know, the priests could get up on Sunday and tell us where we came from, but no, no scientists would be allowed to talk about it. Oh, cause that, that would be unsigned anyway. And then to like with yeah. the, with the COVID-19 thing, it was hilarious where people were worrying about, was it, was it made in a lab? And some of us who remember those debates were like emailing me and said, oh, God, Bob, these guys are being unscientific. They're wondering of COVID-19. Yeah. Okay. So well, actually, so, so actually I wrote, I actually wrote an article about that because uh, um, I, there was a, if you remember, they actually wrote, did a paper early on about how it couldn't have been made in the lab. And they, they, they went through and said, well, here's how you would make it in a lab. It, it obviously doesn't match these things. Therefore, it was not designed in a lab. And so I wrote an article. I was like, you know, if you all had spent five minutes uh, taking any heed of what the ID movement says, you would know that you can only rule in design. You actually technically can't rule it out um, because, you know, you can always, you know, someone can do something intentionally to seem random. Right, right. Um, so 
you actually can't rule something out as design. You can only rule it in. And therefore, the conclusion, you know, I, I don't have any personal knowledge either way as to whether or not COVID-19 was done in the lab or not. I, I honestly, it's not something that affects me one way or the other. Um, but I could see that they actually didn't have the technical knowledge to know how to make a proper design inference because they've been ignoring us. Uh, when we actually have gone through the, the, you know, the process of saying, what does a design inference look like? What does, what does it mean? What are the limitations of it? What can you do with it? Um, these are things that we've been discussing in the ID community for years. And so when the science all of a sudden needs to do a design inference, they don't, they don't know the, they don't know the framework for it. Um, and so they kind of left themselves out. But one of the things I wanted to also mention, because it's actually pretty funny, um, you know, you talk about how, um, you know, how career killing it is to, to, to be an ID. And, you know, I, I, there, there is somewhat of a sea change. And it's, it's kind of a, a funny overlap because th- there are definitely places where it's still a, a career killer. But there's also places where there's some sort of homage being paid to the old guard. But like there was so there's a paper, uh, there's an ID paper published in the Journal of Theoretical Biology a couple of years ago. and um, Shortly after it was published, there was a big hubbub, and so Journal of Theoretical Biology was forced to publish uh, a note mm-hmm. that said something to the effect of, oh, gosh, we didn't realize these people were ID. If we'd realized that these were ID people, we wouldn't have published the paper. Oh, I'm so sorry. Oh, I'm so sorry. Oh, I'm so sorry. Well, what's hilarious is that like six to nine months later, they published another ID paper by the same people. Mm-hmm. And then published the same, oh gee, oh I'm sorry, oh I didn't know, uh, note attached to it. Hmm. Um, so it's like it's like you know they're they're just gonna they're, they're gonna publish it, but then they're gonna apologize, and so they're gonna pretend like you know they're gonna do the dance, they're gonna they're gonna say the words, do the dance, and but at the end of the day they're gonna they're gonna allow it to be published. Do we, that seems to do be, we know was it the same editorial staff? I mean, it was the same journal. Um, so I don't, I don't know if it was handled by the same editor or not, but Uh nonetheless, I mean, if I remember, you know, the journal's contents are intelligently chosen. That's just not just, (laughs) um, if I remember correctly, they, they didn't even write a new note. They just linked to the old one. Um, Whoa, that's weird. (laughs) Yes. It was, was, yeah. (laughs) Well, I think, I think it was their signal to everyone else. That's like. Is like okay, we'll we'll count out to you as far as saying we're sorry, but we're not, uh-huh. you know, sorry, not sorry, you know. Oh, and well, so, maybe I understand. Wait, so it wasn't that the first note said, "Gosh, we wouldn't have." Was it more just like we are aware that there are strong misgivings and we don't agree with a lot of what the ID movement says? Nonetheless, we felt this particular paper met the merits. No, no, they, did they no, say no, that? They, they, no, no, they said they said. Well, I, I don't remember the uh-huh. exact words of it, but if I remember correctly, it was something to the effect of we, we wouldn't have, have published this had if, we known. If we would have known, okay. it's like like oh, <laughs> I, I didn't know. You know, uh-huh. who knew there was gambling in this establishment? Right, you know, right, right. That sort of thing. And you know, if, when it happens multiple times and you say the exact same thing every time, uh-huh. you're like, well, maybe that maybe that the. the uh, Maybe it's just for show. But even so. linking to the last time you said, I had no idea. That's that's what's honestly <laughs> why I like recoiled yeah. and thought maybe I'm misunderstanding the situation. Okay. Yeah. Huh. No, they, they, they literally like, oh, yeah, just refer to my statement last time. That's interesting. When you find gambling in this establishment. Yeah. So. Okay. Well, um, yeah, because I think 
it probably would simmer down because it's I've noticed uh more and more scientists like like public intellectual types are a lot freer on podcasts. It's partly probably because of the rise of podcasts and things are getting more loosey-goosey and whatever that they're saying things. I, I'm not talking about like ID. I just mean like, like if you saw some guy on Joe Rogan's or some, some PhD and uh, I don't know, well, let's say biology on Joe Rogan's show and he's an MIT or something. And he was talking about like telekinesis. Like he wouldn't necessarily be ruined especially if he sounded right. real sharp and like was using jargon and stuff. Whereas I think 20 years ago, people would be like, what are you crazy? You know? And so anyway, I just think that people are more open now to the fact that the world is a lot more complicated and there's lots of energy flows and man and all this stuff. And, you know, reputable scientists can talk about things that would have been hippy dippy 20 years ago. There are more things in heaven and earth ratio than are dreamt of in your philosophy. Exactly. So what do you think we should give more preamble or just jump into your papers at this point? Um, yeah, let, let's, uh, let's jump in. Um, I want probably the, the best one to jump into is, uh, the one about, uh, random, uh, with, with respect to fitness or, uh, or external select external selection. Yeah. So the official title is random with respect to fitness or external selection question mark, an important, but often overlooked distinction. Okay, and yeah. so where did you? Where was this published? So it's a theoretical biology journal called Acta Biotheoretica. Okay, and uh, it's uh, I forget where it's published out of. It's it's uh, it's somewhere in Europe. Um, I think it's Nordic. How about Fantasyland? That was my Rodney Dangerfield. <laughs> nice. Yeah, and so so this paper, um, kind of what I'm doing here is I'm challenging uh, the notion that mutations are accidental. Um, Okay, because we were gr- we we're growing up, you know, told, and and this this is what happens, like you know, when I in my time in the creation movement, every everyone kind of took the assumption from the modern synthesis that uh, that um, the that mutations were random. That they just said, "Oh, I'm I'm going to take that as yeah." yeah it's well, sort of like of like the phrase "random mutations" almost like a pleonasm, sort of like uh, on side failures. Like it's an innocent bystander, you know, it's by definition the bystander is innocent, right? Know? <laughs> exactly, and uh, and and I think I think part of it is everyone just assumed that there was experimental evidence for this. Um, they assumed that 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 you know who who would make such an assertion if you didn't if you didn't have the data on your side, right? Um, and there, it's not that there wasn't any data, but the data didn't actually point to what they thought it did, and it was not nearly as strong as. Uh, as they thought it was. And so everyone kind of, uh, it's one of those things, you know, um, back to, if you think about bacteria, Mm -hmm. um, when they first discovered bacteria, um, they discovered it basically by, by the fact that it made people sick. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, That's kind of how they were able, they, they traced diseases and, and for a while, um, you know, we were kind of germophobic. We're like, Oh, well, if we get rid of the bacteria, then we'll get rid of all of the bad things. And if, mm-hmm. so we, we need to get rid of all of the bacteria because all the bacteria is right. bad. And the witches too. Right. That's important. Yes. <laughs> um, but then they figured out, you know, what, what, what actually the case is, is that most of the bacteria is actually good for you. You actually cause mm-hmm. problems if you get rid of all the bacteria. Mm-hmm. Um, but what, what was the case was that we were, uh, you know, at the, at Can the I stop low real level fast? of, 
And, and that's yeah. why, right, like if you're taking antibiotics because you got like an ear infection or something, like you might have diarrhea while you're doing it, like it's mm-hmm. messing with the yeah. good bacteria in your gut and that sort of thing. And you're, and you're supposed to take, you're supposed to eat yogurt and replenish that stuff. And yep. yeah, although I don't know how, how well that works, but yeah, that's the, that's the idea behind it. You take so, the antibiotics um, and the probiotics to get the same amount of biotics. That's what you do. Exactly. Exactly. Um, I don't know why the yogurt and, doesn't and, and help you, you, the thing you, that's hurting you, my you, ear, but anyway. It's, you wind up with just amateur biotics at that point. <laughs> so, um, the, uh, yeah, so, so what it was is that, you know, at the, at the level of technology we were at uh, when we found bacteria is that we could only really trace bacteria when it did something bad. Um, that's the, that's the only way we could really figure out what it was doing was when it was doing something bad. Mm-hmm. And likewise, before we had like whole genome sequencing and that sort of thing, we really could only trace mutations when they did something pretty terrible. Um, it took, it actually took a, a lot of, uh, you know, it, it took a lot more, um, research to figure out when they, when they weren't doing something terrible or, you know, so there, and there were whole classes of mutations that just weren't even thought of because we didn't have the technology to really look at them. Um, but in, in modern times, we're able to discern the mechanisms of mutations more and more, and we're realizing that the, uh, the modern synthesis view of mutations is just wrong. Um, so, you know, the, uh, now, it, I, I don't want to give people the impression that your body knows exactly what mutation to pr- produce, right? So it isn't the case that you know, this happens and therefore your body produces the exact mutation at the exact right time every time, right? Um, but it, it, the, the way to think about it is that let, let's say that you bury a treasure. Uh, let's say that you have a building that has a thousand floors and a thousand rooms on each floor. And we put the and somebody has put the treasure in one of those rooms. Okay, um, so the the in, so your so if I were to search each of those rooms, I'd have to search a million rooms. But if someone said, you know what, um, the treasure is on the eight hundred and fiftieth floor, well, then I only have to search a thousand rooms, right? So I'm still not getting the treasure every time I search, but I'm a lot more likely to than I would have if I had to search every room. Mm-hmm. And so that's kind of the the nature of the guidance. <clears throat> and, and that's also part of the reason why it wasn't found earlier is because it was just assumed that since sometimes it didn't find the right answer, that it must, you know, it must not be actually looking for the right answer. Um, and so people took the idea that the, the fact that, that cells aren't omniscient as evidence that it's just, you know, groping at straws. But it actually turns out to be much more subtle than that. Um, so just to give a, a simple example, um, there's a bacteria called Neisseria, and uh, this bacteria has an outer coat gene called pilin. And so basically what it has is it has, um, it has one, uh, uh, one gene for the pilin, but it also has uh, 20-something pseudogenes that have alternate versions of that gene. Okay. Now, I don't know if you remember back in the day, but they used to say that, you know, we might not know what use of all of the non-coding DNA is, but we know for sure that the pseudogenes are junk, right? Um, but it turns out in this case, bacteria are using pseudogenes to store um, alternate versions of a gene, 
And so basically what happens is you have this recombination mechanism, which will copy from a pseudogene into the main gene, um, the, the DNA sequence. So it's literally mutating itself based on specific DNA sequences elsewhere and saying, okay, well, we're going to take um, this part, take this pseudogene and copy it into the main gene. And so that way, because it's always going from a pseudogene to the main gene, you're never losing um, your information um, because you always have the alternate copies. You're just changing out which one is the main copy. And so – Can I um, – hang on a second, please. Um, yeah. That happens when the cell – reproduces or a given cells just sitting there and it does the swap and the same organism now um, is running around with the pseudo gene now in the driver's seat. Um, I, I, I believe it doesn't want to re when it reproduces. Okay. So the parent so, and, organism always had the regular gene mm -hmm. in the driver's seat and the pseudo gene not doing anything. It makes a mm -hmm. copy of itself and that's when the, the swap happens. And now I, that, I believe that's that descendant. That, well, Let's see. This is uh, so. Um, I'm actually not sure. I'm, I'm actually not sure exactly when that happens. Because um, sometimes bacteria will do mutations. Because the nice thing about nice thing about uh, Neisseria and uh, and actually all single celled organisms is that um, you know in multicellular organisms the the problem is that um, when you have a mutation you have to figure out you know even if you if you have a way for uh, the mutation to do something beneficial in the organism, it has to find its way back to the germline. Um, and that, uh, and, and so you have to, if you're going to say that something was uh, directed in an evolutionary sense, you would have to both find the mechanism that the mutation came about and find the mechanism that it came to be in the germline. Um, the nice thing about single celled organisms is that when you have a mutation in a single celled organism, um, the, uh, since it's this is there's only one cell, it is the germline. So if you have a mutation in that cell, um, then that's you don't have to trace it again. It's already there. So you just have the you have the mutation, um, and then it is then uh, inherited by its offspring. So um, so an, an example of a, a mutations that are really interesting that happen. Um, in that that are not necessarily um they're not they're since they're in multicellular organisms they're not necessarily inheritable but they are directed mutations um is um is in your uh, your antibodies and so so first of all the way that you generate antibodies is amazing mm -hmm. um you actually have basically um you have you have cell you have, you have different parts of the gene that get recombined into a uh, into an antibody, an immunoglobulin. Um, so basically, it's called VDJ recombination. So there's basically uh, three buckets: a V bucket, a D bucket, and a J bucket. And those get a, a piece from each bucket gets pasted together, and that's your new antibody. There's also a, another region called the C region, but that's let's just think about it in this term. And so. Basically, your cell has just a whole line of V buckets, a whole line of D buckets, a whole line of J buckets, and it's got it's got spacer elements between them so that the cell can tell where it needs to cut and paste. So it's got these the specific sequence uh, that says here's where to cut, and here's and then it's got a 
another system that uh, tells how to make sure you don't accidentally join the wrong thing to the wrong thing. Um, and so it basically cuts and pastes. So, it, and, and the thing that's really nice about this is you get a, you get a combinatorial effect. So, you know, if, if I had, um, uh, these aren't the actual numbers, but if I had uh, 10 V genes, 10 D genes and 10 J genes, well, then I would have, um, what is that? Um, a, a thousand different, uh, a thousand different um, amino goblins just from 30 genes from 30 gene parts so you have this combinatorial explosion uh that works in your benefit uh, but that's not even the cool part um the nice thing is that if you have a uh, if you have an antigen that comes in and you don't have an antibody that matches um well your 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 uh, body will do uh, what's called somatic hypermutation and what that does is it basically uh, causes your uh, your immune cells to uh, hypermutate. Uh, that means mutate really fast and, until it finds a uh, an antibody that matches. Now, what's even better about this is that if if your immune system just mutated any gene at random, that wouldn't be helpful um, because if it mutated any gene at random, well, you know the the uh, you know the the Genes that, you know, do sugar metabolism don't really help, you know, mutating them won't help you much. Um, it's usually just a short jump from one of your existing immunoglobulin genes. So it restricts the mutations in this, in this somatic hypermutation. It restricts the mutations to just, uh, just the immuno, immunoglobulin genes. Um, but not, but not only that, um, there's there's actually kind of two parts to an immunoglobulin gene. There's one part that kind of sticks to the antigen, and one part that kind of signals to the immune system that says, "Hey, look over here." Um, and so, if you if you mutated the part that said "Hey, over here," um, it it wouldn't then no matter what happened, it wouldn't be effective because it couldn't signal the rest of the immune system. And so it turns out that all the mutations happen at least almost all the mutations, you can almost never say all in biology. Mm -hmm. So anytime you hear me say all, I mean almost all. Mm -hmm. um, so all the mutations happen um, in the part that sticks to the antigen. And so it's not, it's not that the cell knows what the mutation, sh which mutation, it sh which specific mutation it should do, right? It knows which general class of mutation it should do. And that, mm -hmm. that greatly restricts the number of mutations. If you think about, mm -hmm. hey, I previously had 3 billion base pairs to look through. Now I have a few thousand. That's a giant, that's a very big difference. Uh, in, especially if you think about how uh, the search space, you know, it's, it's basically a, a, a combinatorial explosion when you have to meet, have more than one mutation. Mm -hmm. Okay. So, is this right? Obviously, the and by the way, yeah, back during the lockdowns and whatever, I was when they were working on the you know Operation Warp Speed or whatever, and I started reading, and I yeah, I was yeah fascinated by how complex the immune system was, and it it almost looked like there was way more involved than I would have guessed. I mean, I guess that's not surprising in retrospect, but yeah, just all the different things that your body does. Um, and then like, how does it remember? You know, like, well, once you gain immunity to something, like how that 
what what does that mean? And so, yeah, so that was interesting. But clearly, standard biologists are familiar with what you just said, and they're mm-hmm. like, yeah, that doesn't make me think that uh, you, you know that Darwin was wrong or something. So, are you saying, look, everybody, this distinction I'm trying to make between random mutation and uh, selective mutation um, or restricted yeah. class of mutation. You already know that distinction because that's, that's what goes on in the immune system. We all know this is standard stuff. And now I, Jonathan Bartlett, am just saying, take that distinction now and be cognizant of that and remember it. Let's now turn to the broader you know, explanation or framework by which we try to explain the origin of the species and, you know, why do you just assume yeah. that it's got to be a random mutation? We've already just seen that not all mutations that happen in nature are, quote, random in that sense. Right. And that's that, that's, a, that's a good point. Yeah. the uh, it, It's kind of it, – because everybody seems to kind of – they seem to agree with the theory of random mutation. But then, you know, we'll kind of push everything else, even if it – really looks very different from random mutation into that bucket. Mm-hmm. And you're like, no, there, there really are two, you know, at least two different buckets here. There's, there's mutations that are actually haphazard that occurred because you got exposed to too much sun and your body broke down and, and that, but there's a, there's a, there's a whole other class of mutations that you can't call them random with respect to fitness because they really aren't. And I think part of the problem is, you know, a lot of the people looking at this don't really think about what is the mathematics of what that means. Mm-hmm. Um, what does it mean to be directed? Because what, what happened is a lot of this got papered over a lot of, by saying, okay, well, the rate of mutation changes, right? So if, if an organism stressed, it might increase the rate of mutation. And then they say, okay, well, it might increase the rate of mutation at certain spots. Um, and, you know, but once you hit increase the rate of mutation at certain spots, you have to ask yourself, how is that possible? You know, so let let me go one further. Uh, it, they might increase mutation at certain spots that might be more likely to help the organism survive, right? Once you hit that level, how how is that different from it no longer being random with respect to fitness? Because the idea behind random with respect to fitness was that there was nothing governing what which mutations occurred. But if the mutations are increasing in rate at a site that is more likely to be beneficial, um, you know, there there needs to be, you know, some actual recognition of the fact that this is not the same thing as, you know, the the random with respect to fitness. The the other thing that a lot of people do is they'll say, um, Yes, we know that there are mutational hotspots. Um, this has always been known. And that's, that's true that it's always been known that there are mutational hotspots. But random with respect to fitness means that the hotspots were not supposed to be um, – they, they were not supposed to correspond to biophysical fitness. Right. Um, that they were supposed to just be you – know, um, that it, you know, the, it just so happened that this spot mm-hmm. – was more mutationally active in this other spot because this specific sequence was, you know, a little bit more, uh, more likely to be uh, mutated at random, maybe more sensitive to UV rays, something like that. Uh, not that, you know, we've, it, that it was not supposed to be the case 
that this was coded in such a way so that when something happens, that means that this needs to be changed, that it would be changed. So there's the, the whole point of random with respect to fitness was that the need of the organism was not supposed to be any factor of the, the question of mutation. And so, so the first, can I, can I stop one, you just because yeah. I'm, I'm tracking out with what you're saying. This distinction. I'm it's, it's dawning on me what you're, what you're really doing in this paper. So let me say this um, it may help some listeners or if you tell me, no, that's not it. So, right. Like um, somebody who was lived near the Chernobyl accident, maybe 20 years down the road, like has super hearing. And someone's like, what the heck is that? Or, or their kids have super hearing. And someone's like, what's that? And they say, oh, it's, it's because of a random mutation based, you know, on the radiation they got from that Chernobyl uh, accident. And, you know, did something in the inner ear and we're looking at that and that's why their kids, you know, have off the charts um, hearing ability. And then if somebody said, what do you mean random mutation? No, it's, it wasn't random. It was because they lived down the, you know, straight from that nuclear plant. That's not, nothing random about that. Everybody know. And you would say, okay, sure. Yeah. It's not that it randomly hit them instead of somebody who lived in, you know, Chicago. What we mean is, the muta- you know, it, it wasn't a mutation that was in some way that we would have thought would have anything to do with hearing, like that. So, yeah, yeah, Ch- Ch- Chernobyl was not oriented towards giving somebody hearing, right? So, that's so, yeah. and, and in that in that example, like everybody gets without a moment's further reflection, like, yeah, when we say random, we don't mean like science can't explain it, like, yeah, there's always a specific cause of something, you know, absent getting down to the quantum level. Sure. Yeah. When we in biology, when we talk about a random mutation as an explanation for, you know, some adaptation of, you know, some more evolutionarily fit adaptation, we mean that the mutation was not like looking ahead. There wasn't some guiding process involved. And so then if they say that though, then you're saying, well, wait a minute, what's going on with the immune system? Like, isn't that, and so you're realizing that that standard, I don't know if shibboleth is the word I want, that's actually a, not a very secure foundation, even though in other contexts it sounds like, yeah, of course that's what we mean by random. Exactly. And uh, so, and, and this, this happens quite a bit. And the amount that modern people who are trying to defend the modern synthesis are trying to kind of play with words to, to paper over this, I mean, that really lends me to think that there are, that they are actively trying to uh, hold on to a worldview about what mutations mean uh, rather than actually trying to make good distinctions that are uh, helpful mm. scientifically. Well, so for example, okay, sorry, go ahead. Uh, yeah. Um, you, you know, s- some people will say, well, if, if the mutation, if a, if a beneficial mutation occurs less than 50% of the time, then it's the, then, it, then we, we can call it random. And it's like, well, no, no. Um, the the raw percentage actually is irrelevant. First of all, if you imagine predators, there are predators who are not fifty percent successful at catching their prey. So we can't we we wouldn't say that they are um, don't have the end goal of catching their prey just because they're less than fifty percent capable of doing so. Um, and likewise, with my example with the with the building with the million rooms, you know, when we knew what floor it was. That was a lot of information, even though our chances of finding the treasure was still one in a thousand. Um, so the the raw percentage doesn't matter. 
what matters is the amount of 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 kind of assistance uh, that you get in in discovering where the treasure actually is, and and the nice thing is that that's quantifiable. Um, uh, that, that's in that's in my other paper, but uh, I, I don't quite want to get to it yet because um, I wanted to. I just wanted to talk about some other things because um, what what happens here. Well, can I stop you one second? Yeah. What's interesting is I think I can see where where the uh, proponent of yeah, I know you don't want to use the standard view the the Darwinian synthesis view uh, modern synthesis view. I can see why they would hear, you know, our discussion thus far and think, okay, yeah, that's a clever little cul-de-sac you went down there, Mr. Bartlett. But I think they would say something like this, or I could imagine what, what happened is that over the course of human evolution, yeah, or maybe the immune system was, you know, inherited from some earlier thing. Um, there were genuinely, you know, random mutations and yeah, and some people, Whenever they got sick, the the cart the cells in the you know the um and their arteries did mutate, and that didn't do anything, so they all died off. And so it was just over time, random mutations that once in a while somebody's immune system it just enhanced the you know the, the mutations in those particular parts of the immune system that you focused on, and then those organisms tended to survive more. And so that's where this comes from. But you can't use that as a so yes, that's an interesting little quirk that you pointed out. We got to be more careful, you know, when we use sweeping uh, generalizations. But clearly, to talk about you know, oh, and the bacteria has the pseudo gene and it swapped it. All you're really doing is pushing the problem back, and ultimately, you know, no, it had to have come from genuinely random with respect to fitness. Otherwise, where did it all come from? QED. And then, you know, you would say, well, that's our point. Yeah. It must have come from something intelligent. <laughs> and yeah. so I could see how you're both, almost both agreeing mm-hmm. on the same conclusion. And they would just walk away saying this distinction you're raising isn't very interesting because, right. you know, our explanation can't rely on that. That At best, that's just a detail you've thrown in. But still, our explanation has to be random in the way we mean. Otherwise, we're just pushing the problem back. We haven't explained anything. Right. And I I, I – I'm glad you brought that up for a couple of reasons. Uh, first of all, if you just if you just look at it on its face, um, you can you can you can you can hear the worldview seeping in mm-hmm. that because they're they're not saying that we have evidence that these mechanisms arose from from random mutations. They're they're merely asserting it. And as we mentioned earlier, even if they bring up precursor mechanisms. We're not talking about whether or not they're precursor mechanisms. There may be precursor mechanisms. The question is whether or not you can use uh, whether or not you can use uh, basically non-informationally aware processes to get informationally aware processes. And so um, you would not only have to show that there were precursors, but that they were less informationally aware than the current ones, and that there was no other process that had information that contributed to it. Um, so, you know, if you, if, but the, the other thing though, so, so to begin with, there's, there's kind of a, a worldview that's sneaking in there. Um, and what, what I would say is, is, is let's, let's let go of the worldview for, for, for a little bit and just ask yourself if, if we keep on finding that the interesting mutations that we see today now, um, are more and more coming from 
uh, we're finding out that, that there's mechanisms that are guiding them. If, if, if we're finding that more and more about what's happening today, why, why would you look for other mechanisms? Like if that's, if that seems to be what causes the beneficial mutations today, why would you keep on going and say, well, well, it must be some other mechanism mm-hmm. because I, I can't have it be this inform- I can't have that at the bottom. It, it can't be. Why not? Just from a pure empirical perspective, why not? Um, the, the intelligent design movement has also, um, you know, come up with a um, uh, kind of a combination that at its core, it's, it's conservation of information theorems. Uh, but there's there's one in particular called the the displacement theorem, um, which is really interesting, and it basically says that um, you know if, if you think about um, evolution as a search, and whether or not you think evolution is actually a search, it is at least mathematically a search, um, which is all that really matters for informational analysis. Mm-hmm. Um, so the you know if evolution is a, is a search. And we have we know that we have a search that is able to find solutions with a certain um, with a certain frequency, um, you, and you say, okay, well that didn't come about. There was another you can think of the other one as a search process that found this search process. So you have a search mm-hmm. for a search, mm-hmm. right? Well, um, the uh, displacement theorem actually shows that the search for the search is harder um, and even in most circumstances, orders of magnitude harder than the search itself. So if we think about how, so, so you think about this organism and it needs, um, you know, it, it, it needs an antibody, right? Well, finding the single antibody it needs is orders of magnitude easier than finding the system that finds antibodies. And so, um, and so there, therefore, um, you'd have to, you'd first of all need to be able to show that it could find, you know, the, the thing that it's looking for at random in the first place. Um, but also show, you know, if, if something needs one antibody, why would it look in an orders of magnitude larger search space? to find the, you know, not why would it look, how could it, fi- why is it finding this needle in this giant haystack instead of the needle in the smaller haystack? And how is it doing that before dying? Um, you know, so that's, that's kind of the, the intermediate question I would ask. Um, and so that, that's kind of, and so basically what, what ID says is that you can push design back. That's fine. You can push design back as far and as long as you want. But the funny thing about design is when you push it back, it gets bigger. It doesn't get smaller. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, the, uh, um, and I, I always find it weird that people say, well, I have, you know, th- you know, they try to say, they try to separate out origin of life and evolution. Right. And, and, but what if I say, okay, well, what if, if you pushed, if you pushed everything back, if you pushed the design back, let's just say that all of it happened in the origin of life. Okay, so you had instead of an information poor origin life, you had an information rich origin life. And there and and then they're like, well, that that can't happen. And like, tell me why not without 
you know, you've said that you don't know how the origin of life happened. So tell me why the origin of life should be information poor and not information rich without using a particular theory of the origin of life. And that's where, you know, it kind of breaks down. You then have to say something about the, what, what you imagine the origin of life to look like. And it turns out that, you know, even though in theory, evolution is separable from origin of life, there's actually in some important ways, uh, the modern synthesis at least is based on certain presuppositions about what the origin of life has to look like. Yeah. You said a lot there. I, I was tracking what you're saying. Um, and, and this, yeah, it, what you're talking about, about the, the, their commentary. And again, we're putting words in their mouth, uh, but it betraying a sort of a, the seeping in of their worldview affecting things that, yeah. So I'm understanding what you're saying that now that we've nailed down this distinction, you've, you've illuminated it between random mutation with respect to fitness versus mutation that in some way is, uh, uh, narrowed or refined to promote fitness or, or to be, to increase the probability or something like, you know, cause it's not certain, like you said, um, now that we have that distinction. And then if you just say empirically, let's just see in, in nature right now, you know, what mechanism seems to be more prevalent or, and then, and I could see how a lot of modern would be like, what's, what's the point? Who cares? Like, yeah, go ahead and do it. We're not going to say you can't do it. You're not allowed, but that's not going to affect me anyway. Because I know if it turns out that even, oh yeah, 99.99% is what you're talking about. So what? That's not going to explain where life came from. Because you said like, most of that's just pushing the problem back. And we know, so for us to have a satisfactory theory, <laughs> we have to rely on the random, you know, the genuinely random right. stuff. And so, but again, th- that's kind of just saying, right. So you guys are just admitting, you know, you're not arriving at that conclusion because of empirical, you know, induction from the facts. You kind of just say, well, if we're not willing to assume there's a supernatural creator or aliens or whatever, it's no, it's just got to be blind processes with the raw matter that we had to work with, you know, 5 billion years ago and that's it. Then, okay, but you're kind of assuming at the outset what the answer has to look like. So don't be surprised when your reason and science, you know, shoot out the answer at the other end that you assumed at the outset. Yeah, that, that, that's, that's a good way of putting it. So one thing, so I, I do want to, because it's in the title, um, I do want <laughs> to to fully explicate my title. Sure. Um, so the ra- random with respect to fitness versus external selection. Um, the, the very narrow problem I was looking at was um, something can be, so um, if you imagine that there are, there are certain parts of your, uh, let's just imagine there's certain parts of your genome that you shouldn't touch, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so if you protected those spots, um, but freely ran, but freely had random mutation in the other spots, um, you would have you would be non-random with respect to fitness, uh, but you might be random with respect to what was happening outside your body. So, kind of this idea that there is uh, a way that your body works with itself, kind of an in, inner coherence. And so, the question of whether or not mutations are have some amount of inner, inner coherence uh, is separate from the question of whether or not they are responding to things in the environment. Now there's, there's evidence of both of those happening, but I, but the main gist of, of the paper 
was to to point out that even the ones that uh, that we don't know that they're triggered by the environment, that doesn't mean that they're random with respect to fitness because fitness includes both the internal fitness of how my body works with itself and fitness with the environment, right? Fitness is both of those things. Um, but if I have mutations that are, uh, if, if mutations are more likely to occur in places where they're safer to occur, that already is not random with respect to fitness. It's, it's only random with respect right. to external selection. Because when you're saying safer, that's what you mean, ultimately. Like, what do you mean safe? Yeah. That, yeah, that's... Right. That, that I'm not, I'm not going to disrupt my internal biological processes. Um, so, so things like metabolism, mm-hmm. you know, metabolism is usually pretty, the, you know, how, you know, coming up with a different food source, that sort of thing. Um, that's usually pretty safe. Um, so anyway, so de- dealing with the outer environment versus, you know, how does, how does this part of my body communicate with this part of my body? That's usually a little, or this, you know, what are the internal internal housekeeping of the cell? Okay, um, that sort of thing. Um, that's a little bit more dangerous to touch. Um, but we know from experimental evidence that uh, mutations are more likely to occur in the places that are safer, and so it is not random with respect to fitness. So we can't view mutations as just being haphazard. They're not accidents that happen to the cell. They're actually, in in many cases, they're guided by the cell. Um, if we had a lot of more time, I would tell you about some of the more interesting ones because there's some that are like really, really cool how they work, but it's kind of biochemically involved. Mm-hmm. I'll give I'll give a reference for anyone who really wants to uh, to dive into it. There's a, I think it's called a hopping into a hot seat, um, and it's a really fascinating paper on. Uh, 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 not and not by someone who's in the ID movement, as far as I'm aware. Um, a really fascinating paper on how uh, on how this can happen, on how mu- mutations can be directed by the environment. Um, but um, anyway, so I, that, and then another thing I want to mention for my paper is that this isn't just this is, this is not just um, just mere definitions. Now. I, I sometimes like to argue over definitions because I think they're important generally. But there's there's more to it than just defining words and, and that sort of thing. There are actual um, areas of biology that are being modeled based on the idea that mutations are random. Mm-hmm. So um, w- one of the main ones being uh, distribution of fitness effects. So uh, what they what they do to try to to try to figure out what the distribution of fitness effects of mutations are is they will assume that mutations are random and then randomly mutate a protein and then figure out what the effects of those mutations are. And then they will kind of assume that, uh, that these, that this spectra of contingencies is equivalent to the spectrum that happens in biology because mutations are random with respect to fitness. And so, um, and, and there's, there's, there's good theoretical reasons that you can model random with respect to fitness with actual randomness, um, even though they aren't equivalent ideas. Um, and so they, they aren't wrong that if they follow the modern synthesis, that would be a good approach Mm -hmm. to, 
characterizing the distribution of fitness effects. But if mutations actually aren't random, then that isn't a good approach to characterizing the fitness effects of mutations. And so these ideas have downstream consequences that aren't always immediately obvious. Um, And so that's one thing that's, it's one of the important parts of, of establishing a solid theoretical basis uh, is so that you have ideas because there's never a time when you're doing science and you have all the information that never happens. It doesn't happen. I'm not sure if it happens anywhere in life, maybe, uh, you know, quizzes in logic classes. That's kind of the only place where you actually have all the information you need. And so what happens in every other place is you substitute the information you don't have with theory um, and your, your ideas about what the world should be like. And if your theory is wrong, if your if your core concepts are misguided, then then some of the these and these occur in very subtle ways. Um, but um, your your theory winds up filling in blanks um, that that they shouldn't be filling in, okay. or that should be filled in another right, way. Right. Okay. Now, in that paper, do you do you guys get into or do you do you get into um like specific like empirical results like to show hey this is actually relevant I'm not just splitting hairs yeah here. yeah so yeah so the the, uh, the as I as I in the abstract I, I say uh, uh, this distinction has important mathematical experimental and inferential implications and I go through mm-hmm. um, I go I go through all of those I have I show uh, how this actually affects the way that we look at mutations mathematically. It, it affects how we do experiments and how we make, um, and how we make inferences. So I give specific examples. Okay, of each great. One. Well, what do you think there? I know there was a second paper. Do you want to jump into that or do you think I'll, we should I'll, not? I'll, let's do it briefly. Okay. So I'll, I'll, so, so basically, um, the, cause, cause the, what the second paper did. So the first paper you can think of as very, a very narrow restricted, you know, here are, you know, very, a very definitive definition. Here's, you know, and, and here are the implications. Mm-hmm. The other paper kind of covers in, in more broad let, spectrum. Let, everything. John, let me read the, the title is of yeah. the second paper you're talking about now. Causal capabilities of teleology and teleonomy in life and evolution. Yes. So this, so this second paper covers a lot of the other things that we've been talking about. Mm-hmm. So everything that every side trail that, that you and I have covered today is kind of wrapped up in this paper. Okay. So um, kind of how how you know uh, the question of what is a beneficial mutation? How do you how do you measure them? Um, that's one thing that's covered in the paper is, is how do you how do you measure how goal directed a mutation is? Um, and so that that that's in the paper. Uh, what does this mean for uh, pushing back, uh, you know, pushing back design, pushing back uh, teleology? And, and, and um, I'm sorry to keep interrupting, but it, really it's fascinating mm-hmm. this, this because before you and I had this conversation, if you had said, you know, how do you measure how goal-directed a mutation is, I would have said, isn't the answer zero, like by construction? And yet your exactly. point is no, it or it shouldn't be. <laughs> <laughs> right or or we could you know maybe maybe it is and we, if we measure but, but it, we'll yeah zero, but i said right? by construction that's the part where yeah. we say it shouldn't yeah. be by construction exactly. yeah exactly yeah and and as, as and, and for for someone who's worried about it i did not set up the the question of 
the, the measurement so that I'd always get a positive value or something. Um, it actually, it can give positive values for, yes, it gave information to help you. It could give a zero value that said that, you know, there was no information provided. It can even give a negative value that says not only did it not give it you information, it pointed you in the wrong direction. Um, so, um, anyway, so that there's a, you know, how do you quantify that? Um, there's, you know, what is the kind of the larger scope? What does this mean? Um, there's a term teleonomy, um, that I should take a moment to explain, which is basically if I, if I, uh, teleonomy is, so we talked about teleology being kind of end goals, goal directedness, purpose, um, uh, teleonomy is teleology that is due to a code. So the idea, the reason why it was developed was because they thought, well, organisms look like they're behaving because of a purpose, mm -hmm. but um, it, what, it's, not, it's not a real purpose because it was actually the code and the code came from evolution and evolution didn't have a purpose, but they were, uh, but they are uh, behaving according to a purpose because of their code. And they, they invented the term teleonomy to describe that. Well, the interesting thing is I found that teleonomy, even though it was invented kind of as a way of helping out the modern synthesis, I actually think it's actually a hugely useful term because I think there are things where things act according to purposes because of codes that, you know, there's a lot in the biochemistry that uh, where the purposes of, you know, maintaining homeostasis is being acted on because of codes. Um, the can, codes can are I doing stop all you just again, this is, yeah. um, cause you hear that a lot and you sort of take it for granted, but there is a rigorous sense in which, uh, a bacterium is governed by a code, whereas a rock is not like, it's right. like, like, you know, we, we speak like that, but I'm saying, so what, what what does that mean? Like, what is not everything? Yeah, if so, you scanned it fine enough to tell it, they're all just like atoms obeying the laws of physics. So, what exactly do we mean yeah, that there's a code involved with this with the yeah bacteria? So, so I yeah, so that I go into kind of a detailed definition in the paper. Um, I'll see if I can summarize it quickly. the The way to think about it is this: like, let's so so there's another term called uh, teleomatic that was developed. That means uh, it went to its end because of physics. Like, and this is kind of a, a long-standing philosophical question of whether or not the laws of physics are themselves should be classified themselves as a form of teleology. And so they came up with this term teleomatic to kind of give philosophers their their due, uh, but to say, well, it is the laws of physics, not so. So, so to give an example, if I drop a bomb and just a, like a, a a World War II style bomb. Well, from the time I let go of the bomb to the time that it hits, uh, that's teleomatic um, because it's the laws of physics governing it all the way down. Okay. Um, now there's some there's some amount of ambiguity. You can chalk it up to quantum indeterminacy, or maybe even just my in a, you know our intractability of computation, where there's a scope where you're not sure where that bomb's going to land. Is it going to land here? Is it going to land here? Is it going to land over there? You know, where there's some sort of, but you can say within this range, it's going to land. And I can know that because of teleomatics. Um, now, let's say that I dropped a smart bomb and that it was, say, a heat-seeking source. Well, if I drop this bomb 
and I know that there's a heat source down here, I, I don't have to trace all of the microstates of the bomb to know that it's going to hit the heat source, right? I, I can have a really good idea by knowing the logic that's in the bomb. If I know the logic that it's programmed by, and I kind of know the purposes to which the logic is programmed, mm-hmm. then I can have a pretty good, good idea of where the bomb's going to land without having to go through you know, every physical microstate uh, that it goes through. Uh, even if there's like a wide area that, you know, maybe the bomb could go, you know, within a mile radius, but I know because of its control mechanism that it's going to go for the heat source. And so therefore I know there's a code there, you know, it doesn't have to actually be computer code. It could be a mechanism. It could be, you know, some sort of a, you know, I, I'm terrible with mechanisms myself, so I can't even give you an example mm-hmm. because, uh, you know, I, I, I do, I do, I do software, not hardware. So I got you. Uh-huh. Uh, people get scared if I if I if I hold a wrench. It's uh, bad news for everybody. Um, but uh, yeah. So whether it's whether it's an actual an actual code or just some sort of uh, mechanical system, uh, there's if there's some sort of a control system, well, that's that's guidance and that's that's teleonomy because there's a there's a there's a physical system that's implementing something that's governing towards a goal. And goals themselves, there's a philosophical question of what constitutes a goal. Cover that in the paper as well. Um, so, uh, but once you have, once you've established something as a goal, you can then uh, reason in terms of that goal. So that's kind of okay. where that lands. Okay. Um, all right. So I kind of interrupted you. Do you remember what? Um, I think yeah. So we were talking about. Um, uh, yeah, I mean, we're just, I, I, I forgot exactly where we were, but we we're basically just all of the things that, that we covered today, like, um, so we've got teleonomy, um, it's, it's, teleonomy is purpose because of a goal. Um, well, yeah, you had been so, saying that you thought they almost invented that term sort of cover themselves. Yeah. And then you said, but actually I'm glad they did invent that distinction because, and I think that's where I jumped in. Right, right. Yeah. And I'm, I'm glad they invented the distinction because there are things where we do have codes that, that yield goals. And so being able to say, you know, once we recognize that something is teleonomic, well, then we know that they're under the control of the laws of physics. And once we know that, um, we can say, okay, well, the laws of physics and information theory govern how much can change here. Um, you know, we, there are not, you know, I'm not going to say that there aren't laws of, uh, of teleology, like, you know, intent and, um, action. Cause I think there, I think there are at some level, but we don't know what they are at present, but we do know a lot more about the laws of physics and the laws of, of information theory. And so once we know that a subsystem is governed by the laws of physics and information theory, we can then use those to better um, understand them. And so if, you, if once we recognize that evolution is, you know, there's, there's, there's teleonomic process in, in evolution, then we can use information theory to reason about them. And that's where we get these different evolutionary, uh, non-Darwinian evolutionary ideas uh, that are uh, more, uh, that, that are more compatible with the laws of information theory. That's, you know, we talked about uh, the conservation of information, the, uh, uh, the displacement theorem, these sorts of things. These tell us um, the, 
the conservation of information doesn't tell us anything about what a what a non-physical being would do, but it does tell us about what capabilities a physical being has. And so, um, so if 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 we say that this is you know if, if we want to say evolution is completely limited um, by physics, well then we have to take information theory uh, seriously and say, okay, well what does information theory tell us about uh, how these things can come about? And it says that well, you, you're, as you go back in time, you're not going to get less information. You're going to need more. Um, and so you can push these things back, but as you push them back, the design gets bigger. And you just you, these are things that you have to deal with. Um, and so, anyway, so that's uh, now it might be the case if you want to say that there wasn't you know there wasn't much uh, information content at the beginning. Well, then you'd have to posit that there was a lot of you know agency that maybe instead of putting direct information in the original cell that god put some sort of giant uh, agency oriented drive in this original organism something Mm -hmm. that could create information so something that was not physical that could create information right so these are these are the things that um uh, that that you could posit if you were trying to Say that you're, if you're trying to preserve the idea that everything had a common ancestor, um, but you were trying to, you know, also contend with the fact that if it's if if it's a physical implementation of a code, then if, if it's a physical imp- implementation of tele- teleology, then it has to follow these rules. And so, anyway, can I can I ask you a basic question? Because yeah. a standard. Uh, academic in the information theory literature who's mm-hmm. you know agnostic or atheist what do they say like is the total amount of information on planet earth increasing over time is you know humans write more books and publish more youtube videos and stuff is is that or is that a, is that a nonsense uh issue well i'm I mean, I, I I think it's that would not be a question that's generally asked. Um, but there's a, the the bigger problem is there's a lot of different questions you could be asking. Um, so, the, so there's um, well, I where you, I'm coming from is yeah. you, you keep referring to like the conservation of information. So I'm just trying to say, right, not in this context, just in general. What does that yeah. mean? Like, does it, it? What do people mean by that? Yeah. Do they they don't mean that humans can only know a certain right. finite amount of information and that's already right. set in stone. So, so in, in conservation of information, um, I'm specifically, f- uh, really familiar with it in terms of active information, which is the type of information that we, that I, I deal with. Um, and basically it's, it's about, it's about orientation and that you don't get more oriented towards a solution set. Um, um, kind of, y- y- you don't get more oriented towards a solution set by accident. Um, you, uh, the amount of orientation in a, in a physical system, the amount of orientation uh, that you can have towards a solution set is roughly uh, uh, fixed or withering. It's kind of like an entropy. Okay. If you think about it, it's, it's along the same, it's, it's, it's along the same lines and kind of the same theoretical basis um, is that you, if, if there, there's a lot of forms that it takes, like, uh, there's a uh, there's a data processing theorem that basically says you can't you can't get you can't get more information uh, than is already there. It's like uh, 
kind of a, another way of saying it is is torturing an uninformed witness won't get you uh, any more facts or something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, so the, uh, the you, you can't just generate uh, orientation towards a solution set um, from from physical from physical means. Um, now, of course, as far as like di- you know, disk drives, we can fill data. We can add data all day long, but data is not orientation towards a solution set. Um, data is just recording things. And so you can add data all day long um, to the extent that, you know, human knowledge is, uh, to the extent that human knowledge is information and not just data, you know, is, that is actually oriented towards solutions that I think you actually can get more because I don't think humans are purely uh, physical beings. And I actually give some justification for that uh, in my paper based on, I mean, if you think about it, th- this actually comes from uh, Kurt Gödel, mm-hmm. if you're familiar with him. Mm-hmm. Um, and he actually, for for these very same reasons, uh, thought that the human mind was not material. And in fact, for these same reasons, uh, didn't believe in evolution either. Um, which was, in his case, was the the Darwinian story. Um, that was kind of the only one that was available in his time. Okay, so I guess what I'm – the narrow point I was just trying to un- unpack was standard information science people, when they say mm-hmm. things like that, that, oh, yeah, you can't um, – you know, the, the given closed system is not going to be able to generate new mm-hmm. information on its own. So how does new information get into it? Like they think, oh, humans put it in there, right? Like do they – did they have some kind yeah, of thing? So, that, oh yeah, they, yeah we can't explain the human. That's like a separate plane of existence, and that's not what we're talking about. And who knows? I mean, I, I think that that's kind of where you get the separation between the people who think that uh, that artificial artificial general intelligence is possible, uh-huh. and those who don't. Okay. Um, so um, I've never quite understood the people who think that artificial general intelligence is possible. I haven't ever quite understood their argument, except maybe again, similar to the uh, people in in the Darwinian camp, they have to take that. Position oh, yeah, I mean, I used to be material. Yeah, I can tell, yeah, it just well, it's got to be because we know yeah. I'm just a collection of cells, and my nervous system does blah blah, blah and I produce these effects that you interpret as I have a mind. So it's right. the same thing, like you know, exactly. Okay, so yeah, so that that's a. Uh, yeah, so so the people who believe in, in uh, artificial general intelligence, you know, th- their view is basically that, well, you know, physics is basically computation, um, and that's kind of what defines physics in general is that you can take a prior state and compute a future state. Um, so physics is basically computation, and so therefore, if the brains are entirely physical, then brains can be entirely emulated by computation and. By extension, we can therefore uh, emulate the entire functioning of the human mind by computation. Right. And so that's the view of artificial general intelligence. Uh, and so, it, you know, it makes sense as far as it goes. But if it isn't the case that human minds are entirely physical, um, then it leaves open. And I think a lot of the people who, you know, are open to the idea that humans are not entirely physical, um, most of them do not believe in artificial general intelligence because they don't think that um, they, they think there are capabilities of humans 
that are not directly physical. And so, um, anyway, I, I cover, uh, I cover that briefly, but I, I, I cite a lot of references. If someone's interested, they can, okay. they can find the references in the paper. Okay. Are we at a logical stopping point or is there more you want to? Yeah, no, I think that's a good, okay. a good place to stop. Okay. Well, uh, this has been fascinating. And uh, of course, folks will put links to everything Jonathan has uh, referenced and probably some other things too that you sent me. I suppose, Jonathan, is there is there a place you can point people to if they want to follow you, or do you have stuff? Yeah, you so have an the, online presence. the The main place I, I like to point people to is uh, the the Mind Matters blog. It's kind of a technology blog, but it covers a lot of technology, science, society. Um, I I'll, I'll post there things from you know latest computer science trends to intelligent design stuff. Um, and that's mindmatters.ai, not .com. It's mindmatters.ai. And uh, so I, I write there a lot, um, but there's a lot of other people who write there too. Okay, great. Well, folks, my guest this week has been Jonathan Bartlett. Jonathan, thanks so much for your time and your insights. Well, thanks for having me. I enjoyed it. Thank you, everyone, for tuning in. We'll see you next time. You've just experienced another episode of The Bob Murphy Show. The podcast promoting free markets, free minds, and grateful souls. For more information and to subscribe to this podcast, visit BobMurphyShow.com.